0: Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Crooked Crime Sisters. My name is Taylor, and I'm your host today. And you know what? I am here for you! Just kidding. I mean, I really do do this because I love it. I mean, it helps that you love it, too, but mostly I just... This is my therapy, y'all, and I just really like to talk. For those of you who are new, hi! Welcome! My name's Taylor, and I am just part of the duo that makes Crooked Crime Sisters. We are sisters from the Pacific Northwest, and currently, every Thursday, I'm here to give you the details of a crime that you may already know and discuss my thoughts and opinions. Like you, I am completely obsessed with true crime, not in a morbid way, and yes, I also realize that many criminals find the Pacific Northwest is the perfect place to make their twisted fantasies a reality. I am not a professional by any means, but rather a crime enthusiast who likes to talk, so with that, let's get started. Today's case is rough. Uh, It's far worse than I originally thought I was getting myself into, but either way, it still had me hooked. So, the intensity, the insanity of all of it. In today's case, I will be discussing violent assaults, torture, strangulation, sexual predators, and murder, among many other things that the crime entails. Just like always, I like to give you this disclaimer at the start, so if anything... If any of these things are a trigger to you, you can be aware and you can make a healthy decision for yourself as to whether or not you want to embark on listening to today's story. Before I get into the nasty details of the crime, I'd also like to set the stage and share with you the context of when and where we'll be discussing. Today's case has two locations, and we're going to start with where the crimes initially took place, but then I'll also briefly share like where we end up. Here on this podcast, we like to stay within the Pacific Northwest, which, to be honest, it's fine, because trust me, guys, there's a lot to cover. However, it does kind of limit, like, what I can cover, because if it's not the Pacific Northwest, if I'm giving you cases from Philly, right? Right. However... I do like to bend my own rules, and if a case started here, ended here, or said criminal is from the Pacific Northwest, then guess what, guys, it counts. Thus, that's why we are here today. Today's case falls into the caught category. If you don't already recognize the name, which I don't know, maybe like 35% of you will, we are talking about Kenneth Bianchi, who makes up just part of the duo that was dubbed the Hillside Stranglers. So with that, are we ready? Okay, the setting is Los Angeles and it is the 70s. It's the time of lava lamps and shag carpets. The Lakers had their first championship game in 72 and to be honest, um the 70s were kind of like a riot in my opinion. First off, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, guys, the Bee Gees, Elton John, Pink Floyd, the Eagles. Oh my gosh, all of these. I love them. Not to mention Jackson 5. Really, I'd like to say the 70s was where it kind of like all began. Diana Ross, Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton, all of them were hot and popping. The Star Wars movies had begun along with these now classics, Rocky, Blazing Saddles, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And as much as I truly love to think that the 80s were the best, After kind of doing this research, I don't know, the 70s and the 80s were a hoot, and I'm really sad that I missed it because I was born in 91, but if anybody, like, personally knows me, you know, like, I was obsessed with the 80s for a really long time, I think I'm going to now be obsessed with the 70s, so just prepare your hearts for that. Now, Los Angeles, I don't know, does it really need an introduction? Like, is there anybody that's like, oh, I've never heard of that, or what's in LA? Like, I just feel like that's silly, but... I'll just go ahead and kind of give you, like, a rough overview, right? So, uh, in L.A., crime was pretty poppin'. Crime was hot. Um, The infamous Manson murders had happened. The serial killings were really becoming a norm across the United States. And not too far from L.A., there was the Zodiac Killer, which that boggles my mind 100%. Um, I think that I probably will cover the Zodiac someday, just because... It stretches all over the place, but I don't know. I'll have to look into it a little bit more. Not to mention, you know, good old Theodore Bundy was also running wild in the 70s. It was a really busy time, and um, by the end of the decade, it proved to be no different. So, with that, we know the setting, we know the years, so shall we talk about the crime line? So the way I'm going to set this up is we're going to talk about the crimes of the hillside strangler first and then it will just kind of like flow into the rest because to be honest for a while it looked as though the one responsible for the hillside stranglings was going to get away with it until mistakes were made and someone got sloppy. October 17, 1977, 19-year-old Yolanda Washington loses her life to an inhumane sicko who attacks her, sexually assaults her, and leaves her naked body to be discovered in Ventura near Forest Lawn Cemetery. The corpse was cleaned before it was dumped, and it looked as though she had been strangled with ligature marks on her neck and her hands. Yolanda was a known sex worker who, like many, had turned to working to provide for her children. Initially, her death was thought to be just kind of like isolated incident, just like another one who was going to slip through the cracks or whatever, just because of the line of work that she was in. However, it didn't take long for more and more bodies to turn up in the same area with the same markings as her. October 31st, 1977. Judith Lynn Miller was found in a residential area and actually the homeowner had found her body and had to cover it like with a tarp because it was early in the morning and they were worried that like kids walking by would like see a dead body in the in the yard kind of thing. It was found entirely nude with the same markings as the first body and this body showed signs of multiple rapes, sodomy and strangulation. She was only 15 years old. However, she was known as a runaway and a prostitute. So they took all that information, kind of like put it to the side and just moved on i guess and just days later november 5th 1977 another body is found naked in a country club this time the victim was 21 year old Lisa caston once again same markings on her body strangulation and she showed signs of a brutal rape lisa however or Lisa, was not a sex worker and in fact she was actually a waitress who was last seen at work She also worked for her father's business, and she was a dancer, like a ballet dancer, um, who was saving up in order to become a professional. This was different from the previous victims at the time because I don't think that they had thought that they were connected just yet, although they did share similarities because she wasn't known as like a runaway or a sex worker or anything like that. I don't think at the time that it happened that they clumped these um, together. Also, we have to remember that in less than two weeks, three bodies have been dumped. As if the causes of death wasn't enough, all of the bodies were found nude with little to no evidence. So at this time, they didn't really have a way to connect them other than, okay, all of the bodies had this, this, and this. But at that point, it wasn't necessarily something that entirely meant that they were connected. November 20th, 1977, police are notified when three, I repeat, three bodies are found. The first two being discovered by a nine-year-old boy who went treasure hunting in heaps of trash near Dodger Stadium. And he actually thought he had found some mannequins in a bag, which turned out to be the bodies of missing 12-year-old Dolly Cepeda and 14-year-old Sonia Johnson. These two girls had gone missing on November 13th, so just seven days prior, and they were last seen talking to two guys in a two-tone car. The girls were said to have spent the whole day shopping, and they were on their way home when they were noticed that they were stopped. Like all the victims before, they were said to have been raped and strangled. As for the other body, it was found on a hillside in Glendale, California. This body was in the stages of decomp, and was found by some hikers the body belonged to an honor student by the name of Christina Weckler she was 20 years old and she lived alone in Pasadena while attending art school she was found with the same marks as the rest of them only she had obvious signs of torture with blood oozing from her rear and she had marks on her arm where she had been injected with something having no other signs of being a drug user they they actually tested the body and learned that she had been injected with Windex. For those of you who don't know, that's glass cleaner. Whoever it was that was attacking these women had no rhyme and no reason and was now torturing them as well. So at this point, they're what there're six bodies. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six bodies. And like I said, they have they show the obvious signs of strangulation and rape, but there was nothing that was connecting these bodies together. They weren't the same age. They didn't come from the same parts of town. They weren't the same race other than the fact that they were all women. Like, there wasn't anything that was tying them together. So, at this point, they knew something was happening, but I'm not quite sure if they were able to connect the dots that all of these were the victims of one assailant. For obvious reasons at this point, you know, like, mass hysteria hits and no one felt safe. It wasn't just one specific target, like, simply being a woman, that made you a target. By now, the media was well aware that there was a monster on the loose, and he was being dubbed the Hillside Strangler, assuming it was the work of a serial killer. No one knew, or even thought, that there were two men responsible. On November 23, 1977, the body of 28-year-old actress Evelyn Jane King was discovered, Her body was severely decomposed, as she had been missing since the start of November, and it was now the 23rd. They weren't able to tell if she was tortured or raped, but it was confirmed that she had been strangled. Like, that's how bad of a condition her body was in. Six days later, on November 29th of 1977, the body of missing 18-year-old Lauren Wagner was found. Her body showed signs of rape, torture, and strangulation this time with burn marks on her body as well as ligature marks. Lauren was a business student who lived at home and on the day that she went missing, her car was found strangely across the street. This account was different in the fact that there was a witness to this abduction, although it was never shared outside the police. Lauren's neighbor had actually watched the entire kidnapping take place and she watched literally like from her front window. She witnessed two men, one taller and the other one with bushy hair, and one of them was younger than the other. She could hear Lauren yell out like, you're never going to get away with this, as they took her away driving a car with white on top, you know, kind of like the two-tone one that the girls were talking to. Now, this woman's husband was home at the time that she witnessed all of this, and it seemed to have scared this lady so badly that she, like, had an asthma attack. But it's interesting because once the police interviewed her, they determined that there was no way that she was able to clearly see or hear the abduction take place. And so, like, they were like, dude, she had to have been closer. Possibly, like, in her yard. They weren't too keen that she was sharing the truth about how close she was. And I'm really, like, not sure why anybody would want to lie about something like that. But whatever. December 13th, 1977. The next body was left out on a hill to be discovered as always it was nude and it belonged to 17 year old kimberly diane martin she was a sex worker who actually feared of becoming a victim of the hillside strangler so you know word was around enough for them to all like be fearful and this girl was so fearful that she was going to become the next victim that she actually told somebody that she was close with and said like hey I'm really worried about this. Like, I don't want to be another one of the victims. So, she actually ended up enlisting in a call girl service to, like, protect herself. In an ugly twist of fate, she was, in fact, called on by one of the stranglers from the Hollywood Library payphone, which baffled the police because you aren't supposed to be able to call services like that from a payphone. So even with protocols in place to save her from succumbing to the damning tragedy, she ended up becoming another victim. Kimmy, as she was known by, got the call and went to the meetup spot where she was then given a different address from the one she agreed upon. But by the time the call center was able to, like, piece together what had happened, it was already too late. But what's even worse is that even the call center was able to see this new address and they... Um, attempted to have the L.A. Police Department, I don't know, like do some sort of welfare check or like, hey, go check this address or hey, one of my girls isn't safe. Like, I need your help. And because of the nature of where they worked and everything, I guess the L.A. Police Department like refused, which basically took away any chance that she would have had at survival. It seemed as though the strangler had taken the holidays off. There were no bodies or victims from Christmas through January. But then, by February 16, 1978, the police were notified of an abandoned orange Dotson that was on the side of the hill in the Los Angeles Cliffs. When they arrived on scene, they found the nude body of a woman whose name was Cindy, and she was only 20 years old. She, too, had been raped, strangled, and tortured. Then, having driven to the location, she was put in her trunk, her own trunk, and pushed off the cliff. Cindy, like many, was seen last walking to her Glendale Community College in late afternoon just the day before. It was connected that Cindy and previous victim Christina were both killed and lived in Glendale, so it was possible that the victims and their perpetrator were from or at least lived in the same general area. Cindy was the tenth and final victim of the Hillside Stranglers, with one girl having escaped by pure notoriety of who her father was. Sometime back in 1977, the Stranglers picked up a girl by the name of Catherine Lohr. Ironically, her father was famous actor Peter Lohr, who had gotten his fame by playing, seriously, by playing a serial killer who preyed on little girls. I honestly had never heard of the guy, but but I learned from the year that he started his acting career in 1929 to his death in 1964, he had over 80 roles. And Vincent freaking Price read his eulogy at his funeral. Like, how awesome is that, that Vincent Price gets to read your eulogy? I wish Vincent Price could have read mine. Now, the second that they realized, like, whose kid she was, they immediately released her. Whether or not she knew at the time, like, what would have happened to her, like, had they not let her go, she eventually learned the sad truth, and she was so grateful to have been spared. But I'm sure at the same time, she was probably traumatized by survivor's guilt. And it wasn't until after the stranglers had been caught that she came forward with the information. And I can only assume it would have been supremely helpful at the time. She claimed that the two men approached her as cops. Now unknown at the time it was eventually learned that this seemed to be the way that the stranglers proved in gaining the trust of their victims and using it for their own like sick advantage and like this isn't the first time that this is the type of crime like that they get into like oh oh girl like just come with me I'm a cop it's fine I'm safe like yikes. Now, I'm sure there are a few of you who didn't know about this case, and you're probably like, Okay, great, Taylor. Like, why are we talking about Los Angeles? This has nothing to do with the Pacific Northwest. Well, I say, mm, yep, that's correct, I also say, you just freaking wait. There's more. So, like I said, the last victim of the Hillside Strangler was found in February of 1978. And for some time, it actually seemed as though the killer had just straight up vanished into thin freaking air. And again, other than this girl who came forward to the police saying that there were two guys who were pretending to be cops, for most of it, it seemed like it was the hillside strangler, as in one, singular, not plural. And so many times they did kind of put that out there like, hey, there are guys out there who can pretend to be cops. Like if you're a woman by yourself driving a car, like make sure you don't, like, make sure you pull off into, like, a public area, which is, like, guys, this is still common today. Like, <laughs> take care of yourselves. Just because someone says that they're a cop doesn't mean that they're a cop. But, anyways, like I was saying, the last victim was found in February of 1978. And, on one hand, everybody was like, great, cool, the killings stop. Like, let's just move on and figure out who did it. But on the other hand, there's still, like, no justice for those victims who lost their lives. Those who deserve to have their killer brought to justice, and it seemed like that time was coming up soon. Now, to just back up here a smidgen, there was a victim who I said attempted to spare her own life, or at least protect herself by like joining that dispatch service and while it failed her miserably there were some clues left behind that would prove helpful at the right time at the hollywood public library where the police were able to trace the call they were actually able to pull dang near perfect prints from the phone All right, guys, so like this is 1977, right? So, yes, they did have fingerprinting, but it wasn't all fancy. They didn't have some massive database that they could just use to their advantage. Nay, nay. In fact, while they were able to pull the prints at the time, they were only useful in like comparisons, right? Meaning you only had them to use when you already had like a prime suspect readily available that you could compare those with. Okay, so with that information, just put it in your pocket. Hold on to it, okay? Okay. The strangler killings ceased in L.A., and the cops went from anticipating another victim to working on collecting and connecting evidence to search for the one who was responsible, right? Right. Which brings us to the part where we kind of put all these puzzle pieces together. Let us now make our way up 1,223.6 miles north to Bellingham, Washington, which of course is where? That's right friends, in the Pacific Northwest. January 12th, 1979, two young roommates from Western Washington University are reported missing. It all started when one of those girls, her name was Karen, failed to show up for work. Her boss was concerned because she was only supposed to have been gone for like two hours max. She was taking an extended lunch and she actually shared that she would be house-sitting and making some quick cash while an alarm system was being repaired. So, when she didn't come back to work, her boss became, like, instantly suspicious and was like, something's not right here. It was then learned that the job was arranged by a friend who was a part-time security guard at a local Fred Meyer. So, this info gets passed to the cops who look into it. So, it turns out the supposed guard who had, like, arranged all of this, so they were able to, like, figure out what his name was. And they reach out to him and he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know who those girls are. I mean, at least that's what he said. And in fact, he claimed that he was busy that night that the girls went missing because he was actually attending a local sheriff's meeting because he was in the process of trying to become a police officer. This, of course, would be an easy thing to check out. Duh, right? Like cops, it's easy to if you're trying to become a cop and you're saying that you're attending like some meeting like that, like it's super easy to check and verify if you actually did that so naturally when it's checked and it's learned that he didn't attend the meeting the police were like hmm right and they actually found out that he asked to be dismissed because he had a quote unquote class to teach with his actual employer so people called people who called people and it turns out that none of this was fact and that meant that this man didn't have an alibi, and what do we do when people have either terrible alibis or they don't have an alibi at all? (laughs) Haha, yeah, they become suspects. Yeah, quick. Quick and easy. Everything was a little too unraveled, and when the police couldn't track down the girls, and then this guy who was involved with seeing them last didn't really check out, like he didn't have an alibi, police decided that they were going to go to the roommate's house to go look around, kind of do like a welfare check, right? When they get there, they found nothing maybe some hungry pets. Um, but it just kind of leaned towards the underlying question, where are these girls at? That's when it was decided that this was going to now become like a full-blown investigation. Good police work right here. This is good police work, okay? Circling back, they decide they're going to go back to the security guard because they're like, hmm, homie doesn't have an alibi. He seems a little sus. And it's honestly kind of annoying because like Trying to figure out how it all played out, I don't know, it's just a little fuzzy. But through a series of telephone calls between the cops, the security company, Fred Myers, and everybody else involved, it's actually learned that that security guard was out, quote-unquote, driving the countryside alone. At least that's what his new alibi became. And the identity of that security guard is found to be that of Kenneth Alessio, Bianchi, a name which was about to become very well known. January 13th, 1979, which I don't know if you're a serial fan, but January 13th now will never be the same for me because that's the last day that Heyman Lee was uh, alive. Um, a woman on Willow Street in Bellingham, Washington goes outside and she's like, hmm, this is a weird car, like in my cul-de-sac. I don't like it. So she calls the cops, right? Right. Inside the car were the bodies of the two missing girls. They had been raped and strangled. The police were extremely weary of the security guard, and with a little digging, they actually learned he was new to the area, and he had a California license. So, with a stroke of luck or fate or whatever you want to call it, a phone call was made to the L.A. Police Department, where the detective, who happened to be on the Hillside Strangler case, just happened to be the guy who answered the phone call. And here is where we're going to pause with the whole unraveling and all the connections and everything, because we're going to go back, back, back to the way back to the start. And I'm going to give you some background on the man in question. Okay. Okay. Whether you like it or not, that's what we're doing. So deal with it. Kenneth Alessio, Alessio Bianchi. I could be saying his middle name wrong. So sorry. He was born May 22nd, 1951 in Rochester, New York. His mother was 17 years old, and she was a drug-addicted prostitute who decided to give her son up for adoption two weeks after he was born. At three years old, Kenny was adopted by the Bianchis, Nicholas and Francis. He was their only son. He was quite bright, but also troublesome and a pathological liar. Great qualities. He also just happened to be diagnosed with, um, absence seizures, in which he would go into, like, a daydream, like, trance, and then he would just, like, snap back out of them. I guess they're super common in children. I had never heard of that before, but when I looked it up, I was like, huh, interesting. By the time he was age 11, he had a recorded IQ of 116, which is pretty high for a kid. But he had also been seen by many specialists, and I read via wiki, that he was diagnosed to have passive-aggressive personality disorder which that stems from an alcoholic or abusive childhood where children don't learn how to like process their emotions properly or they're forbidden from doing so and so it kind of creates a monster essentially he's also caught at age 12 pulling down the pants of a six-year-old girl that's a problem then at age 13 kenny's adopted father suddenly died of pneumonia Apparently, Ken refused to show any signs of emotion, and with his dad no longer available to provide, this kind of meant that, like, his mom had to go back to work, and Kenny was known for missing school anytime he needed to help out. Now, I'm not sure if the absence of him at school was because of work, or if his mom just, like, wanted him a home. I don't know. Nothing really gives clarity as to, like, what type of relationship he had with his parents, which, you know, you know me, I think that's annoying because it was like, I want to know, was it good? Was it bad? Like, tell me, I need all these details. Is he troubled from birth type kid or, you know, was this like a nature nurture type thing? Like, I don't know. From what I have collected on my own, I think it's kind of a mixture of both, but there's really like nothing that gives like full details. It says that like his mom would consistently take him to see doctors and psychiatrists and all those kind of things, but nothing says like was she mentally emotionally or verbally abusive or physically abusive and like or was this all from his biological mom like i get it a lot of times kids who are adopted like it's kind of a mixed bag because you don't know what you're going to get biologically from their biological parents versus their adoptive parents and yeah anyways it becomes a giant thing moving on now nothing says whether he did or didn't graduate high school but it does say that he married his high school sweetheart Right off the bat. So, like, immediately after school gets out, like, they're married. But the relationship didn't last long. Like, seriously, only eight months before she left. And it was noted that he was with many women during this union. What a guy. So, it's weird because one source that I read stated that he got married right out of high school. But then it also says that he got married again at, like, age 18 or 19. But I don't have anything else to, like, corroborate that. But I did learn that at age 19, he also enrolled to become a police officer. He then applied to become a sheriff, but then he's kind of, like, turned down from that. So instead, he kind of just went into security. In all seriousness, like, no joke. Like, is that a thing? Like, if you can't be a cop, um, do you just, like, go into security? Or obviously your other option is a serial killer because that becomes quite frequent. Like, when you go into security, is it basically, like, the same job as, like, being a cop? You just don't really get to, like... You have less pay and like you don't have a weapon. Like, please educate me, people. I don't know. So if I'm being really ignorant about what I'm saying, like, apologies, but I'm not trying to become offensive. Also, real fast, I do want to point out, like, I'm not, I'm not joking when I say, like, oh, they either become security guards or they become serial killers. Cause let's go ahead and let's count these, all right? Big national serial killers that were a big deal: Ed Kemper, hmm, Happy Face Killer, hmm, Ted Bundy hmm, Golden State Killer. Like, what is this? Like, that's a thing? Like, oh, I can't do this, so I'm going to go do that? Like, no, that's not the option. Those are not your two options. But anyways, by now, Kenny is 25, and he decides, like, nothing's working out with his, like, security stuff. Nothing's working out with him trying to become a cop, so he's like, yeah, I'm going to go west. He couldn't get any jobs in law enforcement at home, so he decided why not relocate from New York to LA. He ends up moving in with his mother's cousin Angelo. Now this is his adopted mother's cousin, and his name is Angelo, and he offers him like a place to crash until he gets on his feet. Angelo is 17 years older than him, and he actually runs an upholstery shop. An upholster upholstery, an upholstery shop, which will come into play. Just you wait. But first, fast facts. Um, I did find it super interesting, and somebody else noted it, so I feel like I have to regurgitate these facts. But it did say that the Frank Sinatra, yeah, good old blue eyes, the Frank Sinatra was a customer of Angelo's Upholstery Shop. So that's kind of cool. Like, I don't know. But then again, Sinatra was kind of not a great guy all around if you think about it. But anyways. And, you know, I also have to wonder, like, was he, like, that good that he had Sinatra come be one of his customers? Or, honestly, like, because Angela was from the East Coast, was it one of those things where, like, word of mouth, like, hey, my cousin, he's got a place over here. You should go check it out. And then Frank Sinatra's like, hey, cool. It's somebody from the same place that I'm from. Ooh, yeah. I don't know. Anyways. Angelo's story is a wild ride as well and while it is interesting and I'll touch on parts, I really like don't have the time to like fully go into it and it would probably require another episode and I just don't feel like doing that today. Okay. But here we go. Kenny moves in with Angelo, right and he starts getting his feelers out there in the law enforcement too because who knows I don't know that's just what he decides to do. He gets a job with a title company and his mama sends him money for a 1972 Cadillac. And if you don't know what the body style look like looks like, just think, like, classic DeVille. I don't, it doesn't specify which body style, and I honestly spent way too much time trying to figure out what famous car I could explain it as, but I guess that's a detail that you really, like, it, it actually doesn't matter. It was just me wasting my own time, so. Anyways, he gets a car, and he applies with the LA Police Reserves, and he also applies with Glendale County any of these places ringing a bell? Because they should. 1977 rolls around and Kenny, being the brilliant sleazeball he is, actually applies with fake credentials to become a psychologist. How does one do this? All right, guys, you just really gotta hold your pants because this is nuts to me. So, Kenny Bianchi actually created an ad In which it made it seem like he was opening like a practice and he had an opening for a psychologist. And so what he did was he like posted this job and it was like, all right, send your credentials to this address and you'll be considered for this job or whatever. Right. When in reality, he posted that so that he could scam someone else's credentials because you see Kenny never went to college. Let alone got his master's in psychology. So rather, what he did is post that job, and then he got a bunch of people to send him his send him their credentials, and then he basically just copied his own name onto them, and he actually got a job with someone. What? What? Like homeboy used it, and it was making it seem like he graduated from Pepperdine University. Like I'm not even kidding. I wish I was kidding. And friends, just wow. Like. I don't know what's more bananas to me, the fact that this actually worked and he was able to like get credentials sent to him or the fact that he was able to steal somebody else's credentials and then use them to get a job as a psychiatrist. What? And he actually saw patients. Like, I don't know how many patients he saw. I don't know how many patients he had, but he actually saw patients, which is just, I don't know. I'm just over here, you know, trying to get a cult following with my podcast, so I don't understand why, like, I can't have a mass following where I can make this my full-time gig, but Kenny Bianchi can be a master in psychology from Pepperdine University, and he can have patience. What? Why is this life? So, Kenny moves out of his cousin's house because apparently he slept with one of Angelo's seven kids' son's girlfriend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good boy old Angelo has, like, five wives. He's got a buttload of kids. Some of them he doesn't even claim. And seriously, I, I don't know. I just think he's greasy. I think he's gross. He's super full of himself, and he actually considers himself a playboy who goes after young women. And it's just an ugly cycle, because young girls... They feel like, ooh, I'm, I'm just so good because I got an older guy, and, you know, the guy just walks around and feels like he's a stud because he got a younger girl, and I'm just over here barfing in a bag because that's just disgusting to me, but whatever. Who am I, right? Nobody. May of 1977, Kenny has a girlfriend, and she ends up getting pregnant. He actually asks her to marry him, and she's like, meh, no thanks. <laughs> Which I, I'm sorry, that's not funny, but it's funny. But she ends up staying with him. And, like, I don't know. I guess good for her, like, that she's got her boundaries, because I'm terrible with boundaries. And, like, she knew he was a piece of crap, who pro- and, like, she probably didn't want to be tied to him as, like, his wife. But at the same time, like, lady, you're having his baby, and you're living with him. So you're pretty much stuck with him for life either way. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure he's still man-whoring around at this point. Because in this time, it just seems to be that he's that type of guy. And that's the example that he gets from his older cousin. But whatever. So he's going to be a dad. Yay. Awesome. And I don't know why, but now I just imagine like an angry Christopher Walken, like yelling at the insanity of this guy's life. Like, and it's just about to get worse. So Chris Walken, if you're out there, please, I would love your commentary on my podcast. I think it would be great. And I think you're awesome. All right, if you haven't remembered, we are now in the year of the Hillside Strangler Reign of Terror and like when it first started, right? And if you haven't figured it out, yes, Kenneth A. Bianchi, yeah, he's one of those Hillside Strangler men that's responsible. So if you want to take a mad stab, I'll go ahead and I'll let you guess who the other part of our satanic duo is. You bet. That's right. You guessed it, good old cousin Angelo. And how and why did this get started? Well, friends, let me tell you. You see, in 1977, these two bozos, Angelo and Kenny, they're in need of cash, right? So what do men do when they need to provide something? They work for it, right? Well, these two decided the line of work that they wanted to be a part of was pimping out prostitutes. Because why not? I'm in no way endorsing this whatsoever, and I say it with an infinite amount of sarcasm because some some individuals like the, the industry of sex work. Great, whatever, that's awesome, good for you. However, when people are forced into it or it's done without their freedom, then it becomes a problem. End rant. In doing the research on Angelo, I did read somewhere that he had a sickening sexual addiction, And he actually just, like, started to, like, introduce that to Kenny, like, as soon as he arrived. Because that's a good quality to share with somebody, right? He was even accused of molesting one of his wife's daughters and was quoted saying something disgusting about, like, breaking her in. Filth. Yeah. Absolutely foul. And you know what? We all know that there's a special place for degenerates like him. So not even our problem. We can move forward. So these guys, yeah, they start prowling around in search of the right type of ladies that they can recruit to work for them. Cause they're gonna be so cool as pimps. Why? I I don't know. So in the process they get two women to help them identify kind of like the frequent flyers, aka men who use prostitutes the most so they can just so these guys can like zone in on their clientele. This, however, backfires as the list that they're given is a fake. This infuriates them, especially Angelo. So they decide they're going to make an example out of her, and they end up taking her life. Her name was Yolanda Washington, the initial victim of the Hillside Stranglers. Now, what started out as like a means to make money quickly turns into a sadistic game in which taking the lives of whomever they deemed at the time, They became opportunist killers without rhyme or reason. Now, I'm not sure, you know, like, if this list had actually been legit, would they have just sailed off into the sunset and made their money and played the game? Or, like, if they always had, like, this desire to kill? Like, I don't know. There's nothing out there that says that they did. Like, it was all premeditated, like, oh, we're going to kill X amount of women. Like, I don't think that that information's out there. I, I never found it. But I also don't know, like, was this just because they didn't get the list that they wanted Or, you know, like, was it in the back of their heads, like, something they thought would be great? I don't know. I also wondered, like, who was the mastermind? Who was the one who started it? Did they both know what was going to happen? Or did it just kind of, like, happen, like, a dog that eats a chicken or a cat or something, and then a monster's born, and they just couldn't be stopped? These are all the questions I initially have, as I'm sure you have, like, plenty as well. And again, one of these days, we'll do one of these, like, live things, so then you guys can, like, ask me questions, because that would be so much more fun. So we're all caught up in the life of Kenny Bianchi. So let's just jump back into the crime line. I am super angry right now because I had all of this recorded and now I have to re-record it because it didn't save the parts. Ken has just been arrested under the suspicion that he's responsible for the deaths of the 22-year-old and the 27-year-old who were the students that had gone missing from Western Washington University. Upon further investigation, it's learned Kenny was actually a newer resident with a California driver's license. And then the Bellingham PD decided they were going to call around and get some background info on their perp. As I mentioned before, the call just so happened to come in to a detective who was actively working on the Hillside Strangler case. Coincidence? No, I don't believe in those. While watching a documentary on the case, I also learned that it was to their advantage that Angelo owned that upholstery business because it meant that they had access to cars. They could easily get rid of evidence. And, you know, Angelo was actually known for his OCD. And if we've learned anything about Kenny, I'd like to say he's more of a rage-filled, violent one, and that Angelo was probably more of the, like, clean-up, don't-get-caught crew. This is 100% my assumption. On a hunch, the detective from L.A., he immediately jumps on a plane and he arrives in Bellingham, Washington on January 14th. He's got the intent that he's going to go check all of the evidence, go through all of the clues, and see if there's any similarities to the 10 murders that took place back in L.A. With this, they're able to get a search warrant, and while they had Bianchi in custody, they go back to his house and they discover some pretty damning evidence. Not only did they find stolen items from many of the security jobs that Bianchi was on, but they were also able to go through the jewelry. Many of the items belonged to victims of the Hillside Strangler. There was also um, a bunch of his clothes that they took. And so with all of that, they were able to officially charge him with stolen property. That way they could keep him in custody while they worked on the case. They informed the judge that at the time, Bianchi was a flight risk, and they started investigating the double murder, so they set his bail, like, super high. In the time that they were able to go back to the scene of the crime, which that was the house that the girls were said to have been, like, recruited to watch for that short time, it was there police were able to find carpet fibers from the victims pubic hairs matching his on the victim's and the most disturbing thing to me is that from the clothing that they were able to take from his house he was found with menstrual blood matching a victim in his own underwear i i don't even have words like that's just disgusting january 26 1979 bianchi is charged with the murders of the two women in washington January 29th, he's arraigned, and he pleads not guilty. He's held without bail, and he's ordered to be handcuffed in all of his court appearances. Then, in March, he changes his plead from not guilty to not guilty because of insanity, and I just want to go on this little rant, right now, okay? I hate this. I hate that this is even possible. Like, I don't understand how people And not all of them, but most of all of them are completely sane people who knew exactly what they were doing when they did it and how much they just would rather themselves have a cushy sentence. So they try to get out of it arguing that they were not in their right mind. Like, no. This is just a cop out. And unless you have a history, like a medical history or even just like a history like of mental health with your family, you like, I don't even think that you should get the right to be able to claim it unless it's like super documented. And I know that this is like a super gray area because some mental health issues do fly under the radar. But this dude is just a cowardly piece of caca, as my kids would say it, and it's an insult to his victims and their families for him to just pretend like he's not some sadistic maniac because he is. So, this dude even gets his lawyer to claim that he had amnesia during the final two murders so that he didn't even know. But just you wait, because this case gets more and more annoying and, and his like behavior is just appalling. So, Bianchi's lawyer claimed that he had seen three separate psychiatrists who confirmed that he struggled with his mental health, which, yeah, I 100% agree with. Normal people don't kill people. They just don't. It's not a thing. But do I agree that he's insane, like that he can claim insanity and that he didn't know what he was doing? No. I call BS on that. I don't buy it. But the lawyer claimed that all three of these psychs, psychologists, had said that he had multiple personalities however that's not the info that i collected (laughs) in my research what i read what i heard what i learned was that it was pretty inconclusive like yes he did show signs of having mental health issues but if you were to watch the footage from the interviews which you can totally go onto youtube and watch it's super obvious that he was full of it and he was just bad acting like i'm talking like c-list porno type acting like it's terrible now, the judge ends up creating this panel to determine whether or not he's fit to stand trial, right? So it consists of six psychiatrists two that were chosen by the defense, two that were chosen by the judge, and two that were by the prosecution. Makes it fair, right? So they had all that they needed, and once he was determined to be fit for trial, he would face capital punishment. Of course, none of them would agree, because why would they? That would be helpful. But interestingly enough, he was quote unquote under hypnosis and a personality came out by the name of steve and when steve came out he confessed to everything which also implicated his cousin angelo buono buono and pretty much confirmed what law enforcement had kind of suspected but not really like confirmed right meaning that there was not one man as a serial killer as the hillside strangler but it was the anomaly that there were serial killers, hillside stranglers, who went on a rampage together. Now, this wasn't, like, super, like, public. It wasn't something that, like, oh, yeah, we know that there's two guys responsible. Like, yeah, it was rumored that it was because of the whole, like, cop thing that they were like, oh, he's he claims to be a cop. But I don't think at that point, other than, like, officers and, like, people who were actively up on the case that it was really, like, out there, like, no, there's two assailants. I don't think it was like that. So, by him coming forward as Steve, you know, this kind of, like, pointed them in the right direction of, like, oh, hey, yeah, there were two people responsible. Also, just because I think that this is just comical, eventually it was learned that the name of his quote unquote personality just so happened to be the name that was listed on the stolen Pepperdine credentials thus you know furthering my theory that homeboy's just a douchebag liar like what a dummy you couldn't get more creative and like think of a different name like you actually went with the name of the guys whose education you stole what a freaking chump like what an idiot by May of 1979, L.A. was working hard on building the case to be strong enough to charge Bianchi and the 10 Hillside Strangler murders. However, in a rush, they were only able to charge him with five of the 10 due to not having enough or the evidence only being circumstantial. Now, in California, if he was found guilty of the murders, he would be sent to the gas chamber. That's a pretty big deal. Then it all became a moot point because the prosecution decided to offer him a plea deal. If Bianchi was willing to plead guilty in the two murders in Washington and five of the ten Hillside Strangler victims, then he would receive a life sentence, he would avoid the death penalty, and he could serve his time in California. In this deal, he was required to be truthful and basically be a snitch on his own cousin, which at one point I don't even think he had a problem with. Like, I don't, I really don't think he cared. October 19th, 1979, two years and two days following the death of the first victim, Kenneth Alessio Bianchi was deemed to be fit for trial. Are we surprised? No, of course not. Upon learning this, he changed his guilty by insanity to just guilty, and he was sentenced to two life sentences to be served consecutively. Immediately after that happened, it was reported, like, within 30 minutes, that the cops in L.A. were arresting Buono without any problems out in Glendale. So, his house was right next to his upholstery shop, which was right in the middle of where some of the bodies of the victims were found. They charged him with 24 felonies, including 10 for murder. Everything was basically teetering on, like, this credibility of Kenny as a witness, and... I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, like, was he super pissed that he, like, turned on his family, or, like, was he kind of expecting it? Like, I wonder if Angelo was like, nah, Kenny sucks. He's probably gonna, if they catch Kenny, they're... he's gonna, he's definitely gonna spill the beans. Like, I don't know. October 20th, 1979, they fly Bianchi down to appear before a judge. He pleads guilty to five of the ten murders, and the judge sentences him to five consecutive life terms, a term of life for the conspiracy to commit murder, and one life term for sodomy. He would be up for parole in seven years, and then he'd serve 20 to 30 years in LA before being transferred back to Washington to serve out those sentences for those murders. So while Bianchi's in California, he he starts violating the terms of his deal like almost instantly and starts contradicting himself doing anything and everything that so he can make sure that they throw out the case for his cousin because again everything teetered on the fact of what kenny said as a witness and i wonder like was that in an attempt to just be like hey bro sorry for snitching or like was this just part of the plan he also in this time gets a pen pal and dear gracious me like i cannot these women. Like, what's the appeal, ladies? Seriously. Like, why why choose to go after a serial killer? Because it is a thing. Like, some people say it's like a mental health disorder, and I, sure, I guess it is, but I just don't understand. Like, what's the appeal for you? Like, I don't understand why, I mean, I'm not talking about women who are in relationships with men who are incarcerated. I'm talking about the women who purposely seek out a relationship or they idolize men who have committed murder. Nonetheless, it happens all the time, and the last thing I'm saying, the last thing these men need is groupies. But guess what? Kenny Bianchi gets, he's a catch and he gets one, by the name of Veronica Compton. Now, this woman contacts him and becomes his pen pal because she wants his opinion on a screenplay that she wrote. Sure. The play is called The Mutilated Cutter. It's a fiction about a female serial killer who inseminates victims without a male present. Sounds like trash. Your play sucks. So the two of them, they become fast friends because why not? And then she starts visiting him in prison. Great. Kenny decides, you know in this time, he's going to make a statement and say that he is completely innocent and that, you know what? Actually, Angelo, he's the one behind all of this, okay? So, in October of 1980, he comes out with this statement of, like, I didn't do it. It's all Angelo. None of it's my fault. Well, at the same time, he and Veronica devise this dumbest plan I've ever heard of in my life, but they devised this plan that she is actually going to go out and she's going to attack a woman and make it look like all the other Hillside Strangler crimes. But she's going to do this in Bellingham, Washington, right? And to top it off, she's going to leave behind semen. That's right, because Kenny Bianchi found a way to smuggle out his freaking semen in the spine of a freaking library book. First off, Dear God. First off, what idiot thought up this plan? Hi, let's recap for a second. The killings happened in LA. Why would you go to Washington? The only connection that there was in Washington was the fact that Kenny Bianchi was there. Like seriously, did they not think through this? What freaking idiots? Secondly, semen? Really? Now, there's no confirmation that this was Kenny Bianchi's semen, but seriously, who else was gonna give up theirs? Like, hey, I'm gonna go plant some semen on somebody. You want to give me some? No, ew. I also read a case study where it mentioned that um, Bianchi believed he was a non-secreter, which yeah, I had to go look that up because I had no idea what that meant. But apparently, um. There are people out there who don't secrete their blood into things such as saliva, semen, mucus. Like, it's a factual thing. There's people out there that that happens. And Bianchi felt like he was one of them. How did he know that? I have no freaking clue. But anyways, this was the 80s, and now technology is far more advanced. We know that there are these people who do exist, because they do, but it doesn't mean that they become untraceable or that they can get away with murder because that's not true. Like you cannot, just because you're a non secretor does not mean you're going to get away with murder. Because even if someone doesn't secrete their blood type and leave it behind, guess what? You still leave evidence behind whether you want to or not because that's just part of being human. All around, this was just the dumbest freaking plan, but nonetheless, Ronnie Compton thought she was above it all, and she was going to help set the trap that the hillside strangler was still at large and Kenny Bianchi was rotting away innocently. Yikes. Oh, oh and i forgot to mention that in this plan she was also going to plant cassette tapes and letters all around la and bellingham further proving bianchi's innocence by pretending that the killer was still on the loose and that he was just sitting alone being innocent and everything sure idiocracy september of 1980 veronica compton arrives in bellingham washington where she befriends a young woman named Kim. She ends up convincing the girl to go back to her hotel, where they continue to drink, and she's like, oh yeah, I can get you some coke, cool beans, whatever. Back at the hotel, Kim is tied up and strangled nearly to unconsciousness, but Kim wasn't a small girl, and she was actually able to overpower Veronica and break free, and I'm just sitting here like, really? You didn't you didn't think to like size somebody up and either A, find somebody smaller than you, or B at least take somebody who is at least the same size as you that you would actually be able to fight. Which I'm also not saying that because somebody is the same size as you that they're actually able to defeat you, because I know people who are very small who are freakishly strong. But anyways, I'm just thinking, what freaking idiot? Like your plan was already trash, but you didn't think to get somebody that you would be able to like overtake. What a dweeb. Like, what a freaking fool. And you know what, Veronica? I'm so glad she was able to get away from you because you're a disgusting, awful human being, and I'm happy that you got caught. So Veronica ends up fleeing, but, you know, she's stupid, so she does get caught. And her trial began in March of 1981. Now, this bee tried to twist it, and she was like, no, no, guys, you don't understand. This was all a publicity stunt for my play, right? And that victim, Kim, no, she's not a victim. She was in on it. No, she wasn't. That's not true. You're a liar. So, it only took the jury three hours to find Veronica guilty, and part of her sentencing was that she get at least five years. So, the judge sentenced her to life (laughs) with the possibility of parole. Gotcha now a little bit about veronica in 1988 homegirl actually escaped and they found her in tucson like i how do people escape like freaking diane downs how the how did you get out so because she escaped she ended up getting two years added to her sentence and um she actually ended up marrying some old professor at the age of 33 when he was 60. great match. They were even giving conjugal visits, you know, because that's what they need, and she had a freaking baby while she was in prison, who then had to go be raised by her mom. Great. Guys, I have so many things that I want to say, but I don't want to be disrespectful because obviously this child did not get to choose who her parents were, who she was born to, but dang, like, I. (laughs) do you know the truth? Do you know about your mama? Do you know that the guy, that's not your grandpa, that's your daddy? Like, I don't know. She was initially released in 1996, where she went on to go live with the professor, who at this point was seriously like 70. She, of course, broke her parole, and she got sent back to prison, and then she was eventually released again in 2003, in which no one has heard of her since. I'm assuming she probably changed her identity, and I'm just praying she found Jesus, because Lord knows she needs him. So let's go back to the Bianchi case, right? Of course, not long after the whole failed attempt of (laughs) planning a fake copycat, Bianchi decides, you know what, I'm going to make another statement to the public. And this time, guys, I don't don't even understand this guy or where his thought process was or how people allowed him to do what he did. But July 16th, 1981, Kenneth Bianchi comes out and he decides that he needs to mess things up some more because he hasn't guys, he just hasn't done enough damage. This time, he claims that nothing that he has ever said has been reliable. (laughs) Yay. His goal in this was to make confessions, um, all of his confessions inadmissible so that they'd have to throw out the case against his cousin. And again, I'm like, what are you doing? You keep going back and forth. Half the time you're blaming it all on him, but then the other half of the time you're like, "No, no, I'm 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 full of crap. Like I I'm lying. I I just have a personality disorder." And it's like, "Yeah, buddy, we know that. We know that." like you can't keep going back and forth and saying you did it you didn't do it he did it he didn't do it but it's all like both of you did it we know you did it like there's enough evidence there even if we didn't have you saying that you did it we still know that you did it okay so they attempt to have the whole case dismissed but the judge is like nah nah (laughs) not so fast so as far as angelo was concerned he spared the death penalty but he is given a life sentence once Angela was in prison, he refused to ever leave his cell because he was so worried of his own safety. And I'm like, guy, nobody cares. Nobody cares about you that much. So get the frick over yourself. All right. He ends up getting transferred to a different facility in which he meets his wife. Yeah, because that's where you go to meet your spouses is prison. So at age 62, he actually marries her and she was a mother of three, who met him, now get this, she met him while visiting her then-husband at the time, whose cell was near his. (laughs) So, she's going and meeting her husband in prison and then side-eyeing this old man like, ooh, yeah, this looks good. And I'm just like, how embarrassing for your freaking kids. Like, oh, hey, how did your parents get together? Oh, you know, he's just a serial killer, and my mom met him in prison while she was visiting my dad. Hmm, it's okay, he's a sexual predator. Mom's really happy. And i like, what the f- what? What? He died in 2002 at the age of 67, but still, those five years. I don't know. <sighs> As for Kenny Bianchi, he ended up getting married as well in 1989 to a woman who was a pen pal, and they actually met for the first time just before the wedding. So classy. This girl was such a gem that I I guess originally she went after Ted Bundy, but apparently he turned her down. So, you know, good for you, Kenny. You were second choice. I hope that makes you feel nice and warm and fuzzy. Apparently, he's set for parole in 2059, if he's still living, of course, and he was denied for parole originally in 2010. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I think it's safe to say homie's going to die in prison. Now, I did look because curiosity gets the best of me. And of course, there is nothing that states what happened to his actual child, whether it was a boy, whether it was a girl. I mean, I can assume like once the details were revealed about what he was doing on the nights he wasn't home, I'm sure the mother got as far away as possible. But that's also, you know, interesting. And I do wonder if said child like knows the truth about who's like spawn they are. Or if, like, it's just, like, been a secret identity, like, nope, your dad went to get milk and he never came back. Or, you know, like, how crazy if, like, they did try to keep it a secret and then, you know, all those poor kids or people who are finding out who their secret relatives are or finding out that they're, they're not, their parents aren't really their parents because of all the ancestry DNA stuff. Yeah. My mind goes in spirals about everything. But it also makes me think like did the bio mom, did like Kenny's biological mom ever connect the dots and like figure out who her kid grew up to be? Like is she even alive? Like did she even make it to like be alive when all of his like killing spree was going on? I don't know. These are all the questions that I have that I don't have answers for. So you know if you ever find them out or whatever or you know the answers to it, you should totally email me. But yeah, that is today's case. Kenny Bianchi, the one of the hillside stranglers who totally made a fool of himself and ended up getting caught in the good old Pacific Northwest cuz that's where the twisted criminals come, right? Anyways, I thank you so much for tuning in this week. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and listening. Um and I'll see you next week. Bye.